This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Our next guest took over as president of the AMA, the American Medical Association, just last month. Dr. Susan Bailey is an allergist and immunologist, the 175th president of the AMA. She came to the job amid the pandemic and an inauguration, I should say, that was also had to be done uh, virtually because of the situation. She joins us right now on the phone from Fort Worth, Texas. Dr. Bailey, um, so delighted to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. First of all, how are you? Congratulations, and tell us about life in Texas right now. Well, thank you so much for the congratulations and for having me on your show. Uh, Aside from being very hot in Texas, um, the coronavirus is uh, uh, very hot as well. Um, Texas is one of the many hot spots in the country for the virus, and uh, many of our hospitals um, are full. um, And Although we are seeing some little trends that we may be seeing a downward slide in cases, uh, which I think is because of the mask mandates our uh, governor introduced earlier in the month. Well, let's talk about that, uh, Dr. Bailey. Uh, As a physician and as someone who you and your colleagues have been tracking this so closely, I, I feel like some local and state and fed, even federal leaders are getting religion, maybe a little belatedly, on, on the mask wearing. What effect will that have? I mean, is this the sort of thing that could really, as they say, sort of arrest this and, and really change the trajectory now that it does feel like we're all getting on board with this? Um. Wearing a mask should not be a political statement. You know, that being said, leadership uh, and um, symbolism is very important in society. And um, the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, and the American Nurses Association recently released a statement that we are all in agreement that everyone needs to take the simple steps that we know will stop the spread of the virus by wearing masks, maintaining physical distancing, and washing hands. Um, We agree with the CDC that everybody in the country ought to be wearing a mask. I have to say, any of the experiences and interactions I've had, you know, with the medical community, certainly as as certainly the New York Metro has started to open up and reopen up, you know, um, hospitals and medical centers for kind of routine procedures, you know, doctors, everybody's in masks. Like, there's, it's just the way of life, and they understand that. That's just the way it has to be to keep everybody safe. Well, I think it's important to remember that back to business doesn't mean business as usual. Mm-hmm. I believe that we're going to have to observe our mask wearing, physical distancing, and hand washing for the uh, indefinite future. Um, we now have good scientific evidence to show that mask wearing does decrease the transmission of the virus. It protects the wearer. It protects the people that are near the wearer. And um, some have tried to make a controversy or a conspiracy out of changing recommendations over time. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. In the beginning of the pandemic, we did not realize how much 
asymptomatic spread there was um, out there. And we didn't think that wearing a mask would make much difference, and we wanted to make sure that there were masks available for healthcare personnel that were really um, getting heavy, heavy exposure to the virus. Now that we know that the virus is practically everywhere, um, we do think that masks for everyone are appropriate, even the cloth mask, um, and encourage everybody to wear them. So, Dr. Bailey, talk to us about, we'll talk about vaccines in a little while, but I I want to talk to you about treatments because I feel like that's one of the things we've been talking a little bit more about this week, Carol and I have on this program, is sort of what's out there right now to treat this disease because we know that a vaccine is months away, best case. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of treatments that are working? Well, unfortunately, the treatment side of the equation is still very, very sparse. Um, Everyone has likely heard of remdesivir, Mm -hmm. um, an antiviral medication, but that's being reserved for patients in the hospital who are extremely ill. Um, It may work a little bit better earlier in the illness, but um, that's going to be limited by the amount of medication that's available. Um, There's been some reports um, out of Great Britain that um, Mm -hmm. adding a steroid um, for severely ill patients can be very helpful. But other than that, the only treatment that we have really is prevention. Uh, There are a number of drugs in the pipeline, monoclonal antibodies and other therapeutics that we hope will um, you know, be able to be used to treat uh, COVID-19 at earlier stages, but those are all um, still in uh, the planning phase right now. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Susan Bailey, president of the American Medical Association, newly minted, newly inaugurated. She joins us on the phone from Fort Worth. And we just heard an update from our friends over at Johns Hopkins via Charlie Pellet about the state of the vaccine research. Dr. Bailey, I feel like the last week or so, we're just getting these little headlines here and there, especially from an investor perspective that makes people a little more optimistic. Is that optimism misplaced? What's the realistic view on a vaccine at this point? Well, it is nice to get anything that closely resembles good news when you're talking about COVID-19. But I caution that it is very, very early. Um, It's wonderful that the vaccines that we're seeing now, uh, gosh, there are three that are the closest to um, actually being produced for the public, but there's over a dozen that are being studied. We think that they can, they're immunogenic, which means it can give people antibodies to the disease. But the really important point, the reason you get a vaccine in the first place is, is does it keep a person from catching the disease when they're exposed to it? And we don't know that yet. COVID-19 is kind of tricky when people catch it and develop their own natural antibodies. We're looking, we're seeing they don't last very long. And so will that happen with a vaccine? I think time will tell. And that's why phase three studies are so important. So I don't know. Nobody has a crystal ball, Dr. Bailey, and I understand that. And we're learning so much about this virus and treatments today, right, as we go. So how do you see potentially the next three to six months. What's our world look like? Well, I think our world is going to look very similar to what it looks like now. I think we're going to have to put our um, priority on 
um, public health measures like wearing your mask, keeping your hands clean, physical distancing, um, opening up very carefully and very slowly. Um, it will. I'll be real surprised if we have a vaccine before the end of the calendar year that's been shown to be um, safe and effective. Uh, vaccines are safe and effective, but we've got to make sure they work first. Um, I think that um, hopefully we'll see some slowing down of the number of cases if folks, you know, do their good old basic measures. But um, I think we're still going to kind of be in a oh, wait-and-see kind of position to see how things pan out with vaccines. But if in vac- the meantime... Can I just ask I you, though, it, if, 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 vaccines no, are, if vaccines are not the cure-all, though, right? We still don't know, then... You know, I do wonder about what kind of world we live in. Well, I'm hoping there'll be, you know, the answer eventually. We just don't know how quick that's going to be. Okay. We don't okay. know if you're going to need a booster shot. We don't know if you're going to need one every year, like you do your flu shot, which reminds me we are really pushing hard for everybody to get their flu shot this year um, because of the pandemic. Um hospitals, doctor's offices are going to be busy enough. Believe it or not, you can catch the flu and COVID-19 at the same yeah. time, yeah. Uh, and which, oh gosh, you get really, really sick. So we're encouraging everyone to get their flu shot and do a little pre-planning because it may not be as easy to get. There's going to be plenty of vaccine available, but uh, like your employer may not offer it anymore. You're, it may not be quite as uh, convenient to get one, but they certainly will be out there, and we encourage everybody over the age of six months to get a flu shot this year. So, Dr. Bailey, before we let you go, I, you know, I have to ask you sort of in in this new position, you know, you have this vast membership, and I, I think we're all worried a little bit about doctors out there who, who have been on the front lines, uh, how is it going sort of generally as you sort of touch base uh, with your colleagues? How are people generally doing amid all this so many months in? Well, there's uh, two very opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, the the uh, front line uh, physician is working harder than they've ever worked in their life. Uh, they're exhausted. Many of them have become ill uh, and we've even had some deaths um, of physicians mm-hmm. that are taking care of COVID-19 patients. Uh, but at the other end, uh, physicians in um, outpatient medicine and in private practice are having a hard time keeping Struggling. their offices open yeah. because yeah. people are afraid to go to the doctor and some procedures have been shut down. So um, we're helping them as best as we can with, um, you know, advice on how to keep your practice going. Telemedicine has been a a fantastic advance, but Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's no question the physician community needs a lot of support in many different ways right now. Well, we're grateful for you to, uh, for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, And congratulations again on your new role. It's a big deal. Dr. Susan Bailey, president of the American Medical Association, joining us on the phone from Fort Worth, Texas, Carol. And a big year to have to come into it and to step yeah. into these, uh, you know, these shoes in this position specifically. Well, and, in and we should what's say facing the medical community. Her predecessor, Dr. Patrice Harris, uh, was very good to us amid all yes. of this as well. So, uh, yeah. our thanks to her They've as well. And congratulations for a successful tenure there. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, I have to say, I think I can speak for you, Carol Mass, when I say this. We always get a little bit of a sneak sneak peek of what the cover story is going to be. Joel Weber, you know, just for our planning and because we want to know. He gives us a little tip, and uh, we were both so excited uh, when this ended up being the story, in part because we love the subject, in part because we love uh, the writers. It's a terrific one. It's all about Ben and & Jerry's and Unilever 
and Ben and Jerry's at this moment that it feels like it was made for. Yeah, so let's totally. get into it. Jordan Holman is with us, as I mentioned, retail reporter for Bloomberg on the phone in New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, he joins us from Massachusetts. So Joel, tee this one up for us. Uh, well, you know, within the last month, um, uh, as Black Lives Matter uh, started getting um, a ton of attention and the protest took off, you know, the, the first company that actually was out of the gate with a response, and it literally just made all of us go, whoa, that was a really amazing move, was Ben & Jerry's. And Ben & Jerry's, you know, it wasn't the first time they've done this. It, it is actually really part of the company's DNA. Um, the the corporate activism, the social justice. This is just almost the latest chapter of it. And when we saw that, um, uh, Jordan actually was like, she was the one that said all that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, why don't you turn around and write that story for us? Go type and, that. And, and that was, uh, yeah. And that was, um, we pulled in Thomas Buckley, who knows the Unilever side of it. But that really became the expression of this. So Jordan, you know, this this company has been, you know, really known for this from from day one. I think the thing that you you were able to really kind of bring to bear in this is like so many other companies fail when they try and do this. What makes Ben & Jerry's stand out? Yeah, um, Ben & Jerry's, uh, their statement just really hit, you know, we they said dismantle white supremacy. And what we were seeing with other statements is, you know, Black Lives Matter and we support the community. But what makes them stand out is that they have a dedicated team that thinks about these issues every single day. So when a tragic incident like the killing of George Floyd happens, it's not they don't have to scramble to get the resources or to think through this. They've educated themselves. They've done the homework. They've connected with um, partners like Color Change and NWACP to get the wording right. Well, and what's fascinating, too, Jordan, is it is in such contrast to so many other franchises, institutions and companies that really fumbled it. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so Ben and Jerry's has for the past few years said we're going to focus on criminal justice reform. We want to understand how structural racism in the U.S. works. And you don't always get that intensity from other corporations and in, in honing in on that. And one thing that uh, Thomas and I learned from reporting on this is that when they uh, when Ben and Jerry's launches a campaign, they'll spend a year thinking about the topic, um, thinking about criminal justice how they can work with partners, how they can communicate that to customers who might not understand what structural racism is or the, the school-to-prison pipeline. And so that's why when a, a statement from them is released, it really hits and resonates with people. Well, what's interesting, Jordan, is you know, we had uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes on our show yesterday, and one of the things mm -hmm. that he said that – I really took away, and I think Carol did too, was this notion of exactly what you're talking about, this intentionality. And he basically said, he was like, look, and, and he was being 100% serious. He said, slavery was intentional. Jim Crow was intentional. Mm. Diversity and inclusion have to be intentional as well. But it's not always easy, I think, to do that. And yet it is, and, and I, that's, I'm, I'm joking a little bit when I say this, it's baked in in many ways. I mean, it's there on the package. It's there uh, in the company. And that goes back to the founders, right? Yeah. So Ben & Jerry's has been around since the late 70s. And Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfeld, the founders, they've always spoken up on issues that they think matter. And what's changed um, is that, you know, it, it's become more structured, this team. So when they want to speak out on if it's climate change or if it's uh, structural racism, like we're talking about, or whatever issue, 
they're being very intentional about what they want to say and how they say it. And um, for this story, we talked to the executive director of Color of Change, Rashad Robinson, who speaks to corporations all of the time. But he said what sets Ben and Jerry's apart is that they actually put that energy, the time, and he even joked, you know, the flavor behind Black Lives Matter and the things that they care about. Jordan, um, uh, another element that I, I want to bring in here is how, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's owned by Unilever now. Unilever, this massive uh, portfolio of, of, of companies, um, and not always as as sort of woke as Ben and Jerry's is, right? Like this is also the company that does Uncle Ben's rice, and Asia it has skin whitening brands in Asia that it's also trying to figure out what it's going to do. What has Unilever as a company learned from you know having Ben and Jerry's as part of sort of it, it, its portfolio? Yeah, this goes back to Jason's earlier point um, about the founders. So when Ben & Jerry's was being acquired by Unilever, the founders really fought for that independence over um, the social mission, that element that even though they're going to be owned by this conglomerate, they're going to still have this independent board to push the issues that they care about. And that um, has trickled down to other brands. Um, you you start hearing, you, you know, back earlier this month, they said, hey, we're going to halt advertisement on Facebook and Instagram. And Unilever followed them, and other brands within Unilever followed that uh, that intentionality. So, yeah, it's, it starts with Ben & Jerry's, but they definitely have influence over this huge brand that they are um, a part of. And that's what's kind Another of Another thing I'll just point out there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what? sorry, here. The, no, the other thing I'll just point out here, the, and I find this part fascinating, Unilever has a huge ice cream portfolio. Um <laughs> Like Ben and Jerry's is one of many actually within that, which is I just found that to be an interesting factoid. Is like they they clearly like the ice cream business. <laughs> Who doesn't? Absolutely. Well, I mean, Carol, it's, it's, it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting point to point out, Carol. And I mean, and you've spent some time, Carol, with with the Unilever CEO. And I mean, he's been thinking about these things. I think. Yeah, I I do think he thinks a lot about this, and I I think Jordan, you you got you make a good point about the influence that Ben and Jerry's has had more broadly, right, on this huge, massive company. Because I bet that there have been some interesting internal debates. Just got about thirty seconds here. Yeah, I mean, going to your point, the the CEO of Unilever said that um, he would consider selling off brands that couldn't operate in a way that um, improved society. That is a clear example of how Ben & Jerry's has seeped into the culture of um, the bigger companies that they're a part of. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, well, it's a must-read for sure. Uh, Jordan Holman, retail reporter for Bloomberg, co-author of this week's cover story, all about Ben & Jerry. She joined us from New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, he joined from Massachusetts. And I have to imagine, Carol, it's like the swagger that the Ben & Jerry's guys have, like literally and figuratively within this company, being like, you've got to have all these other brand leaders being like, I just uh, Ben & Jerry get to do it? I want to do it. <laughs> well, it's a fun part uh, in the story, too, that just talks about what they had to do to negotiate Unilever buying Ben & Jerry's. So, all right, check that out. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, so one of our most read stories, in fact, it is the most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours, has to be about China vowing retaliation after the U.S. forced the closure of its Houston consulate. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Jason, held a joint press conference earlier today with the Danish Forest Minister, and they did this in Denmark. Pompeo discussing the U.S. abruptly ordering China to close that consulate. We are setting out clear expectations for how the Chinese Communist Party is going to behave. And when they don't, we're going to take actions that protect the American people. And that is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking earlier today in Denmark. Let's understand what this move means down in Houston. And for that, we go to New Hampshire and we check in with Andy Brown, the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. Absolutely our number one go-to voice for all things China. He lived there. He worked there. He's in charge of understanding this U.S.-China relationship and the global new economy for Bloomberg. So we're so fortunate. He was our first call when we try, we're trying to figure out what's going on here. So, Andy, this was a headline that I think grabbed all of us this morning only because it seems surprising. What does it mean? Look, this is this is a major escalation. Uh, I mean, we're moving towards a pretty serious diplomatic rupture, um, and you have to put this in the context of U.S.-China relations, which are really uh, at a level, at a low that we haven't seen since relations were established in in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies. Um, it's hard also not to look at this. I mean, I think you have to look at this. Uh, in the context also of, of domestic U.S. politics. This is mm. Donald Trump lashing out um, in any way he can now um, at China. Um, you know, uh, this, this is, you, you, you can't see this outside the context of, of, of sort of a distraction from, you know, the abysmal job that the White House is doing uh, against, in the battle against coronavirus. Um, it's part of, of, of a wider sort of anti-China hysteria. Um, and we're going to see a lot more of this, um, you know, in the run-up to the election in November. Yeah, I do wonder, Andy, if Donald Trump wasn't facing re-election, would we see this escalation? Um, you know, you, 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 would, you would see rising tensions, but, I mean, these are very concrete actions. And, you know, the escalation, you can, you can see it quite clearly. I mean, you had this tit-for-tat expulsion of journalists. Um, you know, you've, you've had these uh, sanctions against Chinese officials, including very senior Chinese officials, a member of the Chinese Politburo. You had this trial balloon. Um, last week, um, you know, where the New York Times reports that the United States, the White House is considering banning all 92 million members of the Chinese Communist Party um, from from coming to the U.S., uh, you know, which would pretty much put an end to trade negotiations. Um, it would certainly stop President Xi Jinping from uh, coming to uh, to the United States, um, and it would severely disrupt both academic exchanges and, and and diplomatic dialogue. So, you know, you're just you're just seeing an escalation, and and this is clearly, very clearly, the most the most serious action to date. You know, Andy, I, I do wonder, and, and this may be unknowable at this moment, but if anyone were to know it, it would probably be you, because I know you speak to CEOs, you speak to academics, and you speak to economists. If you're a multinational company, 
And you're, you have business in China, both selling to the massive consumer base there, maybe doing some manufacturing there. What does something like this and these continuing political escalations do for your strategy, especially given that it is of a piece in some ways, as you said at the beginning, with everything that we've been seeing? Like, what's the calculus here for a corporate leader? Well, obviously, the, 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 the thing that businesses fear more than anything is uncertainty. Right. Um, and this certainly injects um, a, 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 a huge new, um, you know, uh, I mean, you talked about the, the unknown. Nobody really knows where, where this is going. I mean, Ray Dalio, just the other day, he wrote a very long 8,000-word posting on, uh, on LinkedIn saying that he thinks that this trade war could very – uh, could possibly lead to a shooting war, to a hot war. Wow. You know, so bi- businesses businesses are looking towards a future of uh, of incredible hostility between these the, the world's two largest uh, economies. And you know, all businesses um, are worried that eventually they're going to have to choose. I mean, if we're if we're moving into this bipolar world, um, you know, two technology stacks. Um, you know, a, a, a renminbi block, a U.S. dollar block, um, you know, two trading systems. I mean, that seems to be the, the, the way the world is moving at the very least. I mean, it adds uncertainty and, of course, it adds huge costs to, to businesses who have yeah. to navigate all this. Andy, you're someone who has, you know, as, as Jason said, you lived in China, you understand this. I mean, do you find it surprising that this is where we are at this point? Not really. This has been this has been building for some time. Um, you know, the, the, the decoupling has um, uh, has been progressing and uh, accelerating. I would say, under the Xi Jinping administration, China is now you know on a set on a course of of self reliance. It's determined that the United States wants to throttle its rise. Um, you know, and and. Uh, uh, it's looking forward quite actively now to preparations for a full-on financial confrontation. I mean, we've seen it on the trade side, we've seen it on the technology side, on the talent side, um, and now a, a very senior Chinese division talking publicly about, you know, the need to turn the RMB into an international currency. We can't rely on the dollar anymore. They're talking about the dangers that their own investments in the United States face now potentially, you know, demands for reparation from the United States um, over the, you know, over COVID-19. Right. Um, so the, 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 Chinese, the Chinese are preparing for a, for a full-scale rupture, and this, yeah. is, this it has been building for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, we're so grateful to you for spending some time with us. Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire, timely and on it as always, Carol. Yeah, it's, it's a huge story. It's huge. a remarkable story that will have consequences, certainly on the financial world and certainly the business world. We're already seeing it. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. So in our weekly Bloomberg Green segment, there is a story we want to get to. It's on how now everyone can make their wallet greener. I love the headline on this. Let's get more from Emily Chasen. She is sustainability editor at Bloomberg News, and she joins us on the phone in New York City. Emily, good to have you here with us. So what are we talking about? Yeah, good afternoon, Carol and Jason. Good to talk to you guys as always. Um, so what we were looking at is sustainable finance in your whole wallet. We're always talking about sustainable investing, which is about $30 trillion in assets, but that's really only available to the wealthiest 
you know, investors out there and impact investors and just people who actually have money to invest. But there's a whole other group of financial interactions that people have every day in their wallet, right? And that's your bank deposits, your credit cards. Um, and this is sort of a newer area in sustainable finance where customers can um, think differently about how they're actually making those purchases every day and can they make them more sustainably. Well, and it's interesting because I know Carol and I experienced this with our teenagers who really are thinking about this uh, on a daily basis. I mean, they, they think gives about gives me it, a hard time it. when I don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true that. Um, so what do we do? How do we do this? How do we, uh, how do we please our children here? Yeah, it's really interesting because people are very conscious when you go into a store. Am I buying like the more sustainable meat product? Am I buying vegan meat? You know, am I looking at, is, is there too much plastic and petroleum in this shampoo bottle, right? That's the kind of thing you have every day. But then when you look at your actual deposits and your credit cards and your bank account, you have to sort of ask yourself, what are they financing? So um, BNP Paribas Bank of the West came out this week with a, new climate action checking account. It has a carbon tracking tool to find out if you've shopped at a sustainable store. It even has a biodegradable credit card. Um, Also MasterCard this week announced a plan to work with 60 different financial institutions to issue credit cards made from recyclable, biodegradable, or ocean harvested plastic. And actually, you know, what's crazy about this is that um, 6 billion payment cards are produced a year. So that's actually a lot of plastic that can wash out your card. I know. Yeah, it's a big deal, right? I know. You're like, are you just, are you blown by that, Jason? Are you just blown away. Blown, blown away. away. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a but lot no, of fl- It's really about. Go ahead, Ab. I was going to say, it's really about, you know, what um, you're financing. So Bank of the West, when they're doing this climate action checking account, what's interesting about it is that they're, they, the bank already has very strict policies on fossil fuel lending and tobacco financing. And so they said, you know, we can really offer this climate action checking account because what your deposits are financing, we're very clear about. But that's not true at every bank in your wallet. Yeah. What? What did Al Gore have to say this week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were also talking this week about the future of sustainable capitalism. Um, we had that big Bloomberg Green event. Yeah, congrats on that. Them. It was huge. It got a um, lot of pickup. Tell us about it. Yeah. And sort of we were all talking about the time is now um, to build back better, to rethink what we're investing in. And, you know, one thing he made this interesting point is not doing ESG is sort of a violation of fiduciary duty um, today. And people used to think that ESG was very, you know, maybe you were violating your fiduciary duty to your clients by considering this exogenous factor. And now he says you're, you're not. Um, interesting. If you don't consider it, you're, you're probably violating your fiduciary duty today. So that's a big uh, change when you think about the capital market. That's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. Um, all right. Well, so because be- because there's financial implications, though, right, em- Emily? Like, there's financial, compl- you know, whether it's your impact on the environment or your expo, you know, if you've got a product that might, you know, have an impact on the environment or an impact on people in a negative way. Like, like these are things that are now we talk about a lot, but they ultimately will have potentially a financial impact. Yeah, and I think you see that more than ever today with all these systemic issues in the market with a pandemic yeah. and climate change. And there was a story today that, um, you know, we're going to miss two degrees. The, the best case scenario is now 2.6 degrees. Um, so we're going to live in a world that is much more volatile. And um, the financial markets are definitely going to have to respond to that. And even consumers can respond to that in their wallet.
Yeah, I love it. Because that's what we need is uh, more volatility. I will say, uh, Emily, that Carol was very disappointed when I told her that you and Alex Steele and I, uh, this time last week, went deep on cow toots. She was not happy actually, that she missed it. Am I actually like, I beat him at the beginning and was like, I kind of really want to talk about cow toots. I feel like yeah. I missed out big yeah. time. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I have a new article coming up on plant-based meat this week, so we will come back to it next week for sure. <laughs> Excellent. I'm Excellent. not going to be here again. Oh, good Jeez. Lord. Carol, you, you missed all the fun. You just have to – we're going we're gonna to bring it up at some point. All right. We're going to bring it up. We're going to bring it up. <laughs> all right. Emily Chasen, thank you so much. Sustainability editor. You can read more stories on climate news, science, and the environment. Go to Bloomberg.com slash green. Tons of information there. There's also a lot of a great interactive story. stuff, too. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I love about the green initiative uh, that Emily Emily's working on Love with a big vertical. team here mm-hmm. at Bloomberg. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's one of our verticals. And so there's a lot of things that can really sort of demonstrate for you a lot of the issues facing the climate. And also do check out uh, that conversation with Al Gore. It was a good one. They, you really saw it sort of blow up on Twitter a little bit. He's one of the voices you really want to hear from uh, right now. And, and there's a certain element totally. with Al Gore that's like, yeah, thanks for catching up, people. <laughs> like, I've been saying this. Hello. Like, where have you all been? Yeah, What's exactly. interesting, though, Jason, it went from being kind of a feel good, do the right yeah. thing thing to it now has a financial impact on companies, whether it's consumers don't want to be involved with companies that aren't doing the right thing. But ultimately, if you're in the environment, there are legal implications. Like there's yeah. a lot of reasons why there's a lot more momentum and yeah. you can invest in it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Plus cow toots. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please. Please. No, please. please after you, Carol. All right. Time for the drive to the close with Tony <laughs> Roth. Roth, excuse me. He's Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust, $114 billion in assets under management. He joins us on the phone from Cape Cod. Tony, we're just fighting to get to you. How we're are excited you? to talk to you, man. <laughs> How are hey, you? Guys. Nice to hear your voices. I'm good. I'm good. Everyone's healthy up here. Uh, yeah. Not everybody, but everyone in my family and most people up here in Massachusetts is unwell. That's good. That's good to hear that. Um, I do wonder, too, as you look at what's going on in Massachusetts and then you look at what's going on around the country, what does it tell you about kind of the economic health or economic environment and then ultimately kind of the corporate environment that we are in that leads to the investment environment? Well, even in Massachusetts, people are very cautious and many businesses are either not open or not operating anywhere close to capacity. And so what it tells me is that we still have a long way to go from a labor market standpoint and a small business standpoint to get back to uh, a healthy economic picture. So around the country, Massachusetts, and then there's Washington. So a big debate going on, a lot of headlines coming out fast and furious as lawmakers try and get together, the administration weighs in. How much do you watch this sort of TikTok of that, Tony? Because ultimately, whatever latest rescue or stimulus or assistance, however you want to describe it, comes through is going to have a pretty profound effect, or its lack of is going to have a pretty profound effect 
on where we go from here. What do you make of the debate so far? Well, yeah, it's a great question. And there are two things that we're very focused on right now, Jason, and that is, number one, what comes out of Washington in terms of the fourth package. And the second is the, the rate of COVID deaths. Those are really the two things that we think are the key leading indicators on the market. And in terms of the former, what's interesting, I think, is that you're seeing some positive upward movement in the markets today for, for the first time in a couple of days because, um, meaningfully, because I think that the market is happy that the two sides are really starting to dig in and talk to each other. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting that that's my interpretation because when you look at the latest news that suggests that the GOP would support $100 a week rather than $600 a week um, in unemployment benefits, that's very negative news if that's where we were to land because with the current benefits, they amount to about 15% of our total retail sales are essentially being funded through unemployment. If it got cut that dramatically, that would, uh, that would essentially lose the funding for about 12.5% of total retail sales in the country. That would be very problematic. Right. The repercussions, Tony, through the, through the economy would be very dramatic. And when we talk about what kind of recovery it is uh, that, or that we're hoping to have on the other side of this, it could certainly dampen it even more. Absolutely. We're, we're very dependent right now on the life support we're getting out of Washington in the form of extended unemployment benefits, unemployment insurance, as well as the PPP. And one of the things, Carol, that we're seeing is that if you recall the last two months, we had very positive, surprising labor market reports. Mm-hmm. The private data that we're tracking suggests that the labor market's rolling over and that in July we can see a net loss of jobs rather than these big three, four, five million uh, increases that we saw the prior two months. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons, but including the fact that the payroll protection is running out and yeah. people are free to lay people off right now. So it all ties back to what's happening in Washington. Right. Well, well, in, do you, are you going to follow on that, Jason? No, please. Okay, so in keeping with Washington, I do wonder how much you think, Tony, too, about the elections, the outcome of the elections, and what that means for us getting control of the vaccine, and for what that means for our economy, and ultimately what's that what that means for the for the markets. And also, I do wonder as you watch the vaccine, if we start to see things improve, do you think it's more likely that Donald Trump gets a second term? Well, a lot in that question. Let me start with what's, one of the things that's very interesting around the market right now is that in a typical environment where you have a Democrat winning by, five, by 10 points in the polls right, mm-hmm. right now, and, and winning in the electoral math by a significant amount as well, by the way, which is important to note, and the polls are better than they were last time around, um, and we've also got probably a 51% chance, if not better, of the Democrats flipping the Senate. Typically, that would be a death knell for a market rally because it means higher taxes, et cetera. But this environment is different because um, we don't know whether or not um, Biden would, yes, perhaps raise taxes, but also spend much more freely in supporting an economy on life support. Um, And so the, the picture of the relative paths of a Trump versus Biden administration is quite obscure. And so the market really doesn't know at this stage Um, until we get a lot more color on what their policies are going to be. More specifically, we get into the debates and stuff. The market's really not um, building it in one way or the other. And I think that our thinking is along those lines. We're really not sure. I will say that um, it is concerning right now from a short-term economic standpoint that the Republicans are quite reticent, as we've already talked about, Mm. to increase these benefits. Um, A Democrat could be much more... um, 
uh, willing to open the wallet in, in those regards. Um, so that's why the market doesn't know what to make of it. Right. So, Tony, before we let you go, only about a minute or so left, I do yeah. want to take a minute on the, that second thing that you're tracking. And, and keep me honest, did you say the death rate rather than hospitalization or, or caseload? What, what are you, what's well, the right, important because, number? Yeah. So what is going to really impact consumer activity is going to be the fear that somebody's going to go out and catch a, catch a, a horrible pathogen and die. It's not that I'm going to get something that's going to be a cold and then I'm going to get all better and, and move on. That, that, and that is, in fact, a fallacy, I think, that has led to this new, out, this new series of outbreaks because a lot of people think, oh, I'm immune to it, I'm young, I'm, I'm healthy, it's not really going to affect me. In fact, what we see is that many people that have the virus, um, they get better, but they carry with them significant underlying conditions, maybe for the rest of their lives. We don't know that. But that's not really what's affecting behavior today. That's a subtlety that most people don't appreciate. What's affecting behavior is, if I get this, am I going to die? And up until today, we haven't seen a big spike in deaths. We just broke through 1,000 again on deaths. Interestingly, we saw the 10-year, for the first time, really go back down to into the get a five-handle, 59 basis points today. Um, It's been in the 60s for months now. So that's not an accident. As the market excuse me, as the death cases start to spike again, you're starting to see stress in the bond market. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a very good uh, point and something to think about. We really appreciate the time. Thank you great. so much. Uh, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer for Wilmington Trust, joining us on, on the phone from Cape Cod. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.